That was fun. All right, give me someone to pray for us this morning, and then we'll dive into our lesson. I think Andy needs to pray. <laughs> hey, being volunteered by the wife. I have no idea. I never volunteer anybody. <laughs> You're such a liar. It's, just, it, it's leading me from the heart. Yeah, sure. This is totally going on the podcast, too, by the way. Happy wife, happy... Okay, I can pray. Okay, thank you, Andy. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this, uh, this day. And, Lord, we do like to have fun in here, but at, at the same time, these are very important things. Um, so those who even ask these questions this morning, just let them think about those. And uh, we just pray for Stephen this morning, Lord, as he just brings forth the word that we have receptive hearts. Please bless every single one of us, Lord, that we just would be able to hear everything that's being taught. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in week two of our Tabernacle series, and we did our overview, our introduction last week, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about the brazen altar. But the whole point of the Tabernacle, and the reason why we're doing this series, is kind of the subtitle, Furnishing a Proper Dwelling Place for God. One of the things that I want you guys to really remember is that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The moment that you have received Christ as your Savior, your body, your vessel that you have belongs to the Lord and He wants to dwell inside of you. And so there's a process that practically starts to happen in our lives after we're saved, and that is the process of sanctification. Somebody give me a good definition of sanctification. If you can't after Wednesday, I would be upset. <laughs> Brandon. Completely set apart. Like, it's very noticeably different. Set apart. Okay, set apart from what? The world. And yourself. Yeah. The world and yourself to? Yeah. What? To who? God. God and what He wants for you. So, if you're willing to undergo this process of sanctification in your life, because God can't force you to do it, this is something that, that you have to be willing to do yourself, then that means your life will begin to change. Some things are immediate. Some things just take time, and some things we're just super stubborn about, and it just takes a little bit longer. But He wants to dwell inside of you comfortably. He wants to be able to be inside of you. You are His habitat now. And so we're talking about this because this has practical ramifications all the way down the line when it comes to our walk with the Lord. All right. And so then, um, there we go. Come on. Come on now. I love it when technology doesn't work. There we go. All right, so there is our, our picture of the tabernacle. And as you can see here, this is the part we're talking about today. This would be the brazen altar. Uh, you have the whole nation of Israel, and this would be how they would camp around it. And there was actually tribes that went on certain areas. That was on one of your pictures from last week. And so they would enter in through the tabernacle here and they would hit the brazen altar first before anything else would happen. And this is where all the sacrifices would take place, and we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to talk about the tabernacle, the outer court, beginning with the brazen altar. The brazen altar. Okay, so with this brazen altar, there's a couple things that I want to talk about before we get into it. Um, and that's the fact that God has clearly established this type of the tabernacle being your body. We spent plenty of time last week talking about that. And so this isn't something that we've made up. This is not something that we've invented. Uh, there's a term in theological circles called the allegorical interpretation method. Anybody heard that one before? Allegorical? What does that mean? Anyone know what that means? The allegorical interpretation method. Allegory. Isn't it like instead of taking something literally, you take it as a picture of something else? Yes, and you make it say whatever you want. I mean, they, they, they do this a lot, even like in um, 
like when you're studying Shakespeare or poetry or different things like that in school, they're like, say, what does that mean? And then they pick out these weird ideas and they start to bring it in and they make these, these strange pictures and instructions and all these truths that they say are in the passage. But is that what Shakespeare actually meant? Who knows? Because you're not Shakespeare. But when it comes to the Bible, people do that with the Bible all the time. They'll take something and they'll say, oh, well, that sounds like this. And they make up this crazy interpretation that has nothing to do with Scripture. So what we do is we take these pictures in the Bible and we're not inventing new truths. We're not inventing new things. God said it was a type. So when you go to 1 Corinthians 6 and it says, you are the tabernacle. Now you can go back into the Old Testament and see, okay, how is this tabernacle set up? And this is like me. This is my body. This is my life where God wants to dwell. A lot of people will do this with many different things in Christianity, and you have to be very, very careful. You only do it where God lays out that type. And this is one of those clear examples in Scripture that you are the tabernacle. Okay, so let's go ahead and turn over to Exodus, Exodus 38. Open up to Exodus chapter 38. Genesis, Exodus. You should be able to find that one. Book numero dos. Exodus, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus. There you go. All right. All right, there you go. All right, so Exodus 38. So this is getting in, into the parts of Exodus, and we're going to hit some parts of Leviticus that are extremely dry when you're reading through it. But I'm hoping that as we work through this, you'll start to see some of these things jump off the page a little bit. So Exodus 38, look at verse 1. And he made the altar of burnt offering of shittim wood. Five cubits was the length thereof, and five cubits was the breadth thereof, and it was four square, and three cubits the height thereof. And he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. The horns thereof were of the same, and he overlaid it with brass. And he made all the vessels of the altar, the pots and the shovels, and the basins and the flesh hooks and the fire pans, all the vessels thereof he made of brass. And he made of the altar a brazen great of network under the compass thereof beneath unto the midst of it. And he cast four rings for the four ends of the great of brass to be the places for the staves. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with brass. And he put the staves into the rings of the side of the altar to bear withal. He made the altar hollow with boards. And then he moves on to the laver, which is going to be next week. So as you take a look at this, this would be your picture, which is also at the bottom of your guys' study sheet. So this would be a, a the uh, this this altar, all right? This is brazen altar, and so you have it's you know as far as the dimensions are concerned, there it's four square, but it's five cubits by five cubits, and you have the rings here so that way the staves could go through, and this was connected to the network of of this grate that was underneath. So they actually created this, this brazen network inside of this grate and they placed it underneath the altar and you actually had a place up here where the rings would come through. So when they would carry it, they would be carrying it by those rings fixed to that, that, that grate of brass. And you have four horns on each corner and then you had fire in the midst and this was all for the sacrifice. And it was overlaid with brass. One of the things that you see here repeated over and over again is that it's overlaid with brass. And so another passage of scripture I just want you to see up here is in Leviticus 6, 12 and 13. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. 
and lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. And then verse 13, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Never. Never. It's supposed to always be burning. So you start to think about this whole concept of this, this whole, you know, you have this, this brazen altar. It's on fire continually. It's for these sacrifices. And it's at the very beginning. Because remember, remember, we have here, let's see if the black one works. So you have this whole tabernacle area. And you have the holy place here. And you have the brazen labor and you had the altar here, and this would be where they would come in. And it's at the beginning. And we're going to get to all this in a minute. I just want to bring out some of these observations. And so this would be where it would be at. And then you have here, this is split. And you have the table. And you have the candlestick. That's terrible. And then you had the, uh, the altar there, the most holy place with the, the mercy seat and the holy of holies in here. All right. So this would be kind of this direction. And by the way, I made a mistake last week as far as direction is concerned. If you notice on your, on your guys' pictures from last week, this was the direction that it was always supposed to be. So this is north. This is south. This is east. And this is west. And so as they would go in, remember one of the things we talked about is that approaching God on His terms as He travels east from west. So as you're approaching God, you're traveling east to west to get into His presence. So that's how it was specifically laid out. So no matter where they went as a nation, when they sat down and they set up the tabernacle, this was at the very center of their camp. And it was supposed to be set up so they knew exactly where the compass was at, which is why it talks about the compass of the altar. They knew that this was north, this was south, this was east, and this was west. But this was the very first thing that they'd come in contact with. And it was supposed to be always burning, and the fire was to never, never go out. Okay, so let's get down to some of these details on the brazen altar. So the altar was to be five by five cubits square and burning continually. So there's your blank. First one there is continually. Burning continually. And what is the number five in your Bible? It is the number of death. It is the number of death. So that is not a coincidence. God is a God of patterns. And once you start to recognize certain numbers in the Bible, you start to see that the number five is associated with death all over the place. And it begins even with Genesis chapter five, where you have all the people that lived after Adam, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And that's the beginning, and it goes that way all the way through the scriptures. So it's to be five cubits by five cubits square. The second point, the altar was overlaid with brass. And we already read all that. Is overlaid with brass, and all its instruments were made of brass. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But that's something else that really stands out. The altar was the place for all sacrifices. So anytime you see any sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was always at the brazen altar. So just think about that for a second. Imagine that. Because a lot of us, we just kind of, oh yeah, it's me for all the sacrifices. Okay, when you read all the sacrifices and what took place there, we're going to read a passage here in a minute. But they would bring in the lamb, the goats, and everything. And they would be slitting the throats of these animals and sprinkling the blood on certain sides of the altar. They would be taking that blood and applying it to the horns of the altar. I mean, th this area right here, is pretty gruesome, pretty disgusting, and it would have smelled. How many of you have ever been around like dead animal? 
I know that I've got a deer and it is not, I mean, it's not fun. I remember that was the first part about hunting where I'm like, oh, I gotta get in there and I gotta rip out all its organs and I gotta do all, and I'm telling you, then I read passages of the scripture where they're taking out the organs and they're talking about the kidneys and I'm like, oh my gosh, they were like flaying these things and they were cutting them open and, and pulling all this stuff out. I mean, it would have been a mess, a mess, absolute mess all over the place. And then they were to take that sacrifice and certain parts of that sacrifice they were to put on the altar and other parts they were supposed to carry outside of the camp. So you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. So just think of that. Keep that in mind. Go over to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Not too much far to your right. Chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. So they carried it around burning, like they would, if they were moving camps, did they like carry it around while it was on fire? I would assume so, because it's supposed to be burning continually, yeah. every morning, every night. Yeah. All right, look at chapter 1. <clears throat> so one of the first things that he says right out of the gate, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. He starts off the whole book this way. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer of his own voluntary will at the door, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons. He shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about, round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So this is not something where you just, okay, I'm going to give my animal to the priest and they're just going to do all the dirty work. No, that's not how this is supposed to work. You live in the nation of Israel. Let's just put yourself in that scenario. And let's pretend like this is the door of the tabernacle, okay? And we're saying right here, I would bring in my goat, my lamb, my ox, or whatever, and I would bring it to the door and I would present it. This is my burnt offering. And then talk to the priest and they would say, okay, it's according to the law, it can be accepted. Now put your hand upon it and then offer unto the Lord. God, this is my burnt offering that I am giving willingly out of my own heart to you because I am thankful for you. I am thankful for what you've done for my family. You brought us out of Egypt. You've saved us. You've done whatever. And he starts listing all these things like a prayer unto God. And then he would take a knife and he would kill that thing, catch the blood into a basin. And then he would take that blood and he himself, not the priest, he himself would go round about that burnt brazen altar to offer that burnt sacrifice. And he would sprinkle it all the way around. And then it says that he would flay it. He would cut it open, pull out all the organs and everything. And he'd wash it with water, cut it into pieces, and then offer it unto the priest. This is pretty intense. And you think about kids, because there's no doubt in my mind that maybe even the leader of the family would have brought his wife 
and his children. Maybe there's something that they did as a family that they sinned against God. And so they themselves say, no, we as a family, we have sinned against God and we need to provide an atonement for our sin. And so they would bring whatever is necessary and they would all do this and they would see this. So this is crazy when you really think about it. But this is what God told them to do. I want you to have that picture in your mind. This is not just some little Sunday school story. This is legit. This is what they did. And it's going to come back again, by the way. It's going to be reinstituted during the tribulation. And even throughout the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, it's going to happen again with the temple. So that's the picture of what's going on here. So the altar was the place for all sacrifices. All right, next point. The altar was used daily, daily, every single day, it was used. And I got this passage up on the screen for you guys. So it was used daily. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Again, at the very beginning. It was the first thing that you saw, it was the first thing you came in, in contact with as soon as you walked into the tabernacle. And so it was used every single day. The altar was the first place, that's your next point, the altar was the first place every Jew would have to go before approaching God. Very important. You could not just willy-nilly walk into the tabernacle and just make your way back here and just do all this stuff. No, this is where your relationship began with God. Right here at the altar. And you put the altar of the burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation and offered it upon the burnt offering and the meat offering as the Lord commanded Moses. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. Very important. That's at the door. The door of the tabernacle. And the last thing I want to mention before moving on to the second part is that the altar's grate was the same height as the table of showbread and the mercy seat. Is that on your guys' study sheet? Okay. There was one study sheet that didn't have it on there. I wanted to make sure it was on there. So the altar's grate was the same height as the table of showbread and the mercy seat. So if we were to take a look at this, um, let's see here. Okay, I'll just I'll keep using this. All right. So let's pretend for a second <clears throat> that you would have this. Um, We'll pretend like this is the altar, all right? So this would be the altar. And so the, the edge of the altar would come up around about five cubits all the way around. And then it says that the grate in the, came up to the midst, all right? So this was three cubits high. And then it says halfway down, 1.5 cubits high would be this grate in the middle. And this grate would sit right in the middle. Now, what's interesting about this grate that was in the middle, now, of course, my height's off as far as the dimensions are concerned but just for picture purposes. So halfway through, if you were to draw a straight line from that grate, from the middle of that grate, and you were to go straight into, past the brazen labor, past the holy place, into the most holy place, this grate was the exact same height as the mercy seat here. And that's very significant. And I'll tell you guys about that, especially once we get over here and we talk about the holy place, but that's very important. And it's the same height as the table of showbread here. And so God is, he doesn't make mistakes. 
This is what's really cool about God. He does not make any mistakes at all. He gave precise measurements, told them exactly what they were supposed to do. And so it's very interesting that the same height of the sacrifice, where the sacrifice would occur on this brazen grate, is the same height here and here. So just hold on to that thought, because that's really, really interesting as we continue on through the tabernacle. Okay, so let's move on to spiritual truths for our admonition and learning. So let's take some of these details and let's take a look at what does this mean? Because we know that we are the tabernacle. Your body is the tabernacle. And that in order to approach God properly and to have a proper dwelling place for the Lord, that we need to have things in proper order. So the first point here, the altar of brass is a picture of hell and God's judgment of sin. The altar of brass is a picture of hell and God's judgment of sin. If you were to take the word brass and you start to search it throughout the scriptures, just open up Blue Letter Bible on your phone app and just type in brass and hit search. And you look at every context where brass is used, it's always a picture of judgment. It's always a representation of judgment. And so it's not a coincidence then that here, this is made of brass. And not just the altar... But all the shovels, the pans, the flesh hooks, everything here, everything they were dealing with was made of brass. Even the grate on the inside was made of brass. This is made of brass, the brazen labor. Remember that, because once we get to this point, there's another judgment that takes place for the believer every single day at this spot. But here, this is where we're focused for today, this brazen altar. Now take a look at these verses. So we already talked about that. The altar, is a, the altar of brass is a picture of hell and God's judgment of sin. Now talking about hell, when Jesus talked about it in Mark 9, verse 48, he says, Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. The fire of hell never goes out. The brazen altar, the fire on the brazen altar, it never goes out. It is continually burning all the time. That's what he wants. Always burning, it never goes out, just like hell. Deuteronomy 28, 23. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. That's one example of brass being judgment in Deuteronomy 28 when you study that context. Another one of judgment, Revelation 1, 15, talking about Jesus and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burn in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of, as the, as the, Sound of many waters, the speaker is blocking in. So his feet are like unto fine brass, because everywhere where God goes, judgment goes with him. And those are just a couple examples from the scriptures. So Jesus became our burnt meat, peace, and sin, and trespass offerings unto the Lord. That's our second point here. So first of all, this altar of brass is a picture of hell and God's judgment of sin. And because of that... There's two ways to go about it. Because you may guys have heard this before. Can you pay for your sins? Can you? Think about it. What is your payment for your sins? Death and hell. Death and hell in the lake of fire for all eternity, separated from God. So you can be your sacrifice. But just like with the nation of Israel, I mean, they had a choice to make. Because remember, put yourself back in the nation of Israel. You've sinned against God. And now you need to bring God an offering. What you're doing in a sense, when you bring that offering to the door of the tabernacles, you're saying, God, accept this and don't kill me. So even then, the nation of Israel, they were offering a substitute sacrifice for their own personal sins. 
And so here you have the same picture for us. You can pay for your sins and you can die for your sins or you can have a substitute. And that substitute can be on that brazen altar. And that was Jesus Christ. Every single sacrifice that you find in the Old Testament, the burnt, meat, peace, sin, trespass offerings that you find in Leviticus, all of it, all of it is a picture of Jesus Christ. All of it. He is all those things for us. Let's take a look at a couple of these verses. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then John 19.18 Where they crucified him and the two other with him on the either side and Jesus in the midst. Now there's a reason why I wanted to include that one. First of all, Ephesians 5.2 This terminology and offering, sacrifice, sweet-smelling. Didn't you just read that in Leviticus? I did. Listen to it again. It says right here, verse 9 of Leviticus 1, if you're still there. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. See, this is where God draws these parallels, these perfect pictures. So when Paul is writing this in Ephesians, you better believe Paul was thinking about Leviticus. He was thinking about Exodus. He was thinking about the tabernacle. He was thinking about the temple. And the Jews that would have heard it would have been thinking about the exact same thing because they were offering these things. And this is very important. So Jesus is that. The other one with John 19.18, I wanted to to show this to you because remember this altar right here, this brazen altar, that grate was right in the middle, right in the middle, and that's where the sacrifice was at in the midst of the altar. You hear that phrase? You remember that when we just read that in Exodus 38? That that brazen grate, it went into the midst, up to the midst of that altar. Jesus Christ died in the midst between those two thieves on the cross. God doesn't make any mistakes. I think that's so cool. I think it's so cool. Alright, let's go on to this next point here. The sacrifice Christ made for us should be in remembrance daily. Daily. Every single day. It can be hard at times for us to remember this, but I'm telling you, you need to remember what Christ has done for you on a daily basis. What happens when you forget what Christ has done for you? Just practically speaking, some of you can speak from experience on this one. I know I can, I know some of our leaders can, but I want to hear from you. What's happened in your life when you have forgotten about Jesus Christ dying for your sins? Yeah. Yeah. And you start living for who? Yourself. Every single time. When you forget what Christ has done for you, you will start living for yourself every single time. Every time. I mean, I can think back. Every sin that I've ever committed no matter how big or small that I might think it be, it would be, every sin that I've ever committed always goes back to this. When I remember what God has done for me, I don't, I don't find myself in sin. There's temptations, but when I remember what Christ has done for me, it's easy for me to just say no to those things because of what He's done for me. How could I do that? 
And so in order for me to not think rightly, which is why the Bible uses the term to be sober, be vigilant, all, you know, your adversary the devil walketh around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He uses terms like that. We get drunk on our own perceptions of our life and our own reality. We're not thinking straight. We, we lose all sense of reason. And, and I was in that. I remember back when I was in a relationship in high school and I shouldn't have been in a relationship. I was drunk and infatuated with that relationship and I wasn't thinking straight. And I remember when some of my friends came to me and said, hey, you shouldn't be in that relationship. And they even gave me reasons. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you just don't understand. You just don't understand. No, I've got it under control. I mean, there's all sorts of excuses that I gave and they walked away and I was still stubborn and, and just thick-headed and I didn't see what they saw because I chose not to because I was drunk with my own infatuations about this girl. It's the same thing with you guys. The reason why you're not willing to admit sin is because you're not willing to see it for what it is. And I'm telling you, every single time that I've come back to the truth of Scripture and I've understand, understood what God has done for me and the sacrifice that He's made for me, it sobers me up so fast. And it makes me think about my life, what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, and how I ought to be pleasing the Lord because my life belongs to Him. And we get in these moods all the time, and it's not right, and we need to make sure that we catch ourselves. But I'm telling you, you need to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for you daily. Don't ever let the gospel become something that is old news. Don't ever get so used to the gospel. If you can walk into church and the Bible's being taught and it's just kind of like, hmm, and there's no conviction, whoo, there is something, there's something wrong. Because I don't care how well someone teaches or preaches or doesn't. If they're sharing the Word of God with you, there's something in there that should be convicting you and drawing you into closer fellowship with the Lord. Something. Because it's not about the person teaching. It's not about the person preaching. It's about the book that's being shared and you looking into the mirror of God's Word and seeing what's wrong and correcting it. That's what it's about. Alright, let's take a look at a couple passages. Go to Jude. Go to Jude. It's in the New T. Right before Revelation. This is something that you need to exercise yourself in doing. And that goes with anything else in your life. The reason why you're good at anything is because you're exercised in it. And so when it comes to remembering what Christ has done for you, you need to exercise yourself daily to get into this mindset. Jude. Alright, take a look at verse 3 of chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. If you have two chapters and you need to burn your Bible, sorry. Alright, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So I love this verse for many different reasons, but I love how he says here, I gave all diligence unto you of the common salvation. So this was something that was well known, and he's writing about it again, but he said it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. How can you earnestly contend for something and be obedient to this passage if you don't know it? I mean, you have to be prepared. You have to know it. Do you know what you believe and why? If you don't, then you can't contend for it because you're not exercised in it. And, I'm, and I know that exercising yourself in something is very, very uncomfortable. It always is, no matter what it is. Whether it's in a foreign language, 
I mean, I, I've been going on and off through Duolingo because I'm trying to brush up on my Spanish. And so my kids, after the Browns have been here, they're like, oh, can I get Duolingo on my, my phone, iPod? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And it's hilarious because they're working through it on their own. And they're like, oh, this is so hard. And it's because it's different and it's new. Or the first time that you try to go out running or you try to do something physical and you're not conditioned appropriately, it's difficult and you want to quit or puke. And I've done that before. I remember the first time that I had a trainer and this guy was like ripped. And so I'm like, okay, I feel like a stupid little weakling. And, and this was several years ago. And I remember we worked through all these different exercises and I was like, okay, I can hang with this guy. And then there was this last exercise that he gave me and it was like the worst. So he took me to this area and he stacked four 25-pound plates on one side of the room. And he said, okay, I want you to run down, grab a plate, bring it back and set it down. Run, grab a second plate and bring it and set it down on the other one and do that four times. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. I can sprint down and back four times, no, no, no big deal. What I didn't account for was the added weight of 25-pound plates. <laughs> so then I went and I did it. And then when I was done, he's like, yeah, you did a good job. And I'm like, oh, I'm like super lightheaded. And all of a sudden I get more lightheaded and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to sit down. And then my body's like in major shock and then I vomit. And so it was one of those things where he's like, hey, it's okay, it happens, your body's just not used to this. And so it's one of those things that, this is, this is the way it is with everything else, is that when you're not exercising something, you can't contend for it, you can't compete for it, you can't fight for it because you're not well versed in it. And so when it comes to your spiritual life, which is a shame for many people, is super weak, because people don't spend enough time exercising themselves in spiritual matters. They don't spend enough time with the Lord. They don't spend enough time in doctrine, learning things about God. They don't dive into details like this to understand some of the incredible things that God has put in the Old Testament. There are wonderful pictures of what Christ has done for us that will just enhance your understanding of other biblical doctrines. They don't want to do it. And when they start to do it, they're like, oh, this is hard. Yeah, just like anything else in life, welcome. <laughs> and this is how it is. And so if you really want to be successful in your spiritual walk, you have to be exercised in it. And just like with exercise, is it easier when you have accountability? Yes. Yes, it is. Every single time. It is so much easier. I'm telling you, there are many mornings that I have not wanted to get up and go work out. But I know two things. This is kind of interesting how it's worked out in my life since May. I started working out in May. And, and I would wake up in the morning exhausted. And then I would just remember, he's waiting for me. My exercise buddy, Jake, he's waiting for me at his house. I just can't not show up. He's waiting for me. And then i get there. And then he'd be like, man, I'm so glad you got me out of bed this morning. He's like, I would totally be in bed. So we both would have been lazy and in bed if we would not realize, hey, he's coming over, or hey, he's waiting for me at his house. There's accountability. Now I'm at a spot in my life where I've spent enough time working out and doing other things that I'm like, I have too much invested. So when Jake sends me a text and says, all right, hey, I'm not gonna be able to make it tomorrow morning because I've gotta go to work early. I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna get my butt out of bed and I'm gonna go to the Y or I'm gonna do something, run in my neighborhood and do some stuff in my garage because I've spent way too much time investing into this part of my physical well-being that I can't stop now. I can't. I've got too much invested. Spiritually, that's where we got to be. If you're not exercised in it, then you need to find someone that can give you some serious accountability so that way you know, hey, when I see this person at church, they're going to ask me, how am I doing in my walk with God? 
They're going to ask me, what have I been reading? They're going to ask me, how did you do with your camp commitments? All that stuff. And then, you knowing that will cause you to get into your book. And then the more time you spend in your book, then you're not going to need someone barking over your shoulder all the time because you got too much invested with God that you can't quit on Him now. This is where most people don't get to. And it's a shame because we have no excuses. We live in a day and age where you can... I mean, examine and cross-reference the Bible with technology that no one's ever had. You can understand deep things about the Bible that took people years to understand back in the day. Years. They didn't have concordances back then. I mean, they had the rough ones. But you can open up your stinking phone and type in a four-letter word, and it brings up every reference of it in the Scriptures. You can tap on each one and read the context. It is unbelievable what we have today. And yet, how many of us are astute in those things? We need to exercise ourselves. We've got to. All right, and then here's the biggie. Here's the biggie. Here's the last one. There is no way, there is no way to approach God without dealing with sin through Christ. And this is the big picture. This is the big one. This is the the big reason for this whole picture, there's no way to approach God without dealing with sin through Christ. Go to Hebrews. Back a little bit to your left. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Somebody read that for me. Hebrews 2 verse 9. Go ahead, Sam. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That is Jesus. He is our offering. He is our sacrifice. So when you look at this picture... And you look at, we are the tabernacle. You individually are the tabernacle of God. It starts here, at the very beginning. You cannot approach God's presence here, more specifically here, without dealing with your sin first. You can't. It begins at salvation. You need to be born again. You need to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to have the proper atonement for your sins. You have to. That's right there in the tabernacle. Beautiful picture already in the Old Testament. If you have not been covered by the blood and accepted by God by the blood of your sacrifice, Jesus Christ, then there is no way that you can approach the presence of God. Period. End of story. Now, for people that are Israelites, they're already God's people. The tabernacle already exists. If they break one of God's commandments, or they offend God at any point, what do they have to do? Come here. First. First. If you have done anything in your life to sin against God, even after salvation, if you don't deal with that sin thoroughly, appropriately, you cannot be in fellowship with God. It's not that you lose your salvation. But you can't have fellowship with God. And this is why many people struggle in their relationship with God because they're never willing to truly deal with their sin. They're never truly willing to call it out as it is and deal with it with God. 
And I don't care if it's small. I mean, do you think God cares if your sin is small or not? If there's anything between me and my wife, it bothers me. If there's anything between me and my kids, it bothers me. I hate it more than anything else. I don't want there to be anything between me and my kids. I don't want there to be anything between me and my wife. Nothing. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And it, 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 it's, it's one of those things that just it frustrates me. And, and I know there's times, and in, in, in we've talked about this in our relationship, where you know, she needs more time to process stuff. And that bothers me because it's like, I want to get this dealt with. I want, I want this to work through this. But I have to give her her space so she can think through things. But it's one of those things where I, I can't stand it. I hate it. I hate there being anything between me and the people that I love the most. If I feel that way, how do you think God feels? About you. About us. If there's anything, no matter how small or big, if you're not willing to deal with it, then you cannot walk with God. You can't. you got to call it as it is, and you got to deal with it appropriately. And that's why Jesus Christ died for us. He tasted death for every man so we could have relationship with Him. So your relationship with God is greatly impacted by your sin, and you need to deal with it in order to grow properly. If you're never willing to deal with it, then you can never get into God's presence. And then a lot of people, frankly, they just walk away from God altogether because they're like, well, God isn't listening, or God isn't real, or He's not there. No, He's been there all along. It's you. You haven't dealt with the issues of your life. God does not operate on your timetable and according to your standards. It never works that way. And I hate that people treat God like that. I hate it when I treat God like that. God is God. You aren't. You approach Him on His terms, His way. And if you're not willing to do that, then there's nothing we can do for you. Absolutely nothing we can do for you. So that is the big lesson of the brazen altar. And so here's the beautiful side of it. Once you have this covered then you can inch closer into God's presence. So this is the next one we're going to talk about next week, the brazen labor and what does this mean. And they're very closely related one with another. So we're going to talk about that one next week. All right, so here's a couple questions just to wrap things up for you to think about. Do you truly see your need for Jesus throughout each day? I mean truly. Do you truly see your need for Jesus throughout each day? Not just for salvation, but moment by moment, as you're dealing with things, circumstances, people, classes, teachers, friends, relationships, whatever, parents, do you really see your need for Jesus every single day? Because you should. I need Jesus every single day just as much as I needed Him at the moment of salvation. And so do you. Do you see sin with the same severity as God? Not that it's going to somehow offend other people or that you've wronged someone else, but that you have sinned against God. You need to start looking at it from that angle if you haven't and get exercise in looking at it that way. And how quick and thorough are you to deal with your sin? How quick and thorough are you willing to deal with your sin? You should be very quick and very thorough. You should be wanting to deal with it, not let it hang over your head. A lot of people, they are very good at just throwing things under the rug and they don't deal with anything. And that's why they're miserable. All right. That's it. That's the brazen altar. Uh, someone close us out with a word of prayer and then we'll be done. Go ahead. Dearly Father, Lord, just uh, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for another morning where we get to come together, Lord, and just uh, have fellowship, but also hear your word. 
Lord, thank you for Stephen, just the studying that he's done in his life and how you've worked through him to where, Lord, we've been able to be blessed where we have uh, pastors in our church who study deep doctrinal things and deep doctrinal truths um, and then share them with us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just hear it from them, Lord, but that we'd go search it out ourselves, Lord, so that we can study to show ourselves approved or work out to God. Lord, that our relationship would grow with you and be more personal. Lord, that we would really be zealous for your word. I pray for Pastor Thomas. He's going to be preaching. Lord, that you speak through him as well. Um, Lord, that just everything goes well with people serving the kids. And Lord, that everybody can learn from whoever's teaching them. Lord, I pray that we can be lights to you throughout the rest of the week. Um, and just throughout the rest of the school year. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.